All right, so we're finishing up Acts chapter 5. If you're new with us, uh, this is kind of what we do. We just we take a Bible, that's what this is. You'll see one in front of you there in a pew, or you'll see a lot of it on the screen today, and we just walk through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. Pretty simple, and uh, we just see what God has for us the next Sunday, and we happen to be at the end of chapter 5. We'll pick up chapter 6 next week. A uh, title this morning is called The Church Revolution. Now, the dictionary uh, defines uh, a revolution as a fundamental change in structures that takes place in a relatively short period of time. The results, the dictionary says, includes major changes in culture, economy, and society. Uh, one sociologist named Jack Goldstone, who specializes in social movements and revolutions, defined it this way. He said, a revolution is always accompanied by formal or informal mass mobilization and non-institutionalized actions that undermine authorities. What we are witnessing in the first five chapters of Acts is nothing short of exactly that. It is a revolution that's taking place, uh, which started, by the way, with just 120 uh, common people uh, in that culture and time. It turned the world upside down. Matter of fact, it only took three decades for the history of the world to be, to be turned upside down. Between the years of AD 33 and AD 64, this new movement was born that would forever change the world. It resulted in changes in culture, economy, society, as Christianity became the largest religion in the world the world has ever seen, and hundreds of millions of lives were changed by it as it spread to every corner of the globe. That's what we're reading. That's what we're studying about. And when we pick up our text today, they're in the midst of this upheaval, Society's changing, culture's changing, people are coming to know the Lord left and right, and everything is getting turned upside down, and coming along with that is a tremendous amount of struggle and suffering. And as we've said each time we've looked at the last couple of weeks, is that it's a crucial point uh, for the life of the church. They must make a decision about how much they really believe this message of Jesus. How far are they willing to go to testify to not just the death of Jesus, but as we've seen, the resurrection of Jesus, and what cost are they willing to pay, right? How much are they willing to give up for this? As we've seen, Satan is hurling waves of destruction at them, both internally and externally. And if I could borrow an illustration from surfing, I know we're not anywhere near water right now, but let's talk about surfing for a moment. It's kind of like a surfer paddling out into the ocean. And as they paddle out in the ocean, they must decide to either let the waves crash upon them and be destroyed by the wave, or they can just paddle back to shore as fast as possible and think that was a bad idea and get back to shore where it's safe, or they can push the board underneath the wave. And they can take on that wave and take on another one and keep going and keep going out until they get a point where they can ride the wave. And that is exactly what they are having to decide. What are they going to do? Are they going to run and retreat? Right? Are they going to falter and fall? Or are they going to keep going? And so here in, in 2021, we swim in the, the exact same political, spiritual, social ocean, uh, spiritual ocean that they swam in. But what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the gospel is not compatible uh, with much of the social mores and political pundits of our day. We must decide to either believe this message with all of our hearts and live like we do, or be absorbed into the political and religious culture surrounding us and just become like everyone else. As I've, uh, as I've read the rest of the book of Acts, if you haven't done that, uh, spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't read the rest of the book of Acts, they don't fold. <laughs> they keep going, right? They keep going. 
They don't get absorbed into the culture. They don't conform to the religious culture around them either. They set, to, they set out to conquer the world, but it won't be through military uh, might. It won't be through political scheming, but through the word of the gospel, right? Through the word of Jesus. Powerless politically, scorned socially, in weakness and hardship, they will take their stand to testify, and through their testimony of Jesus, he's going to use that word. That they testify to summon the world to himself. I mean, these guys, these ladies that we read about in these first couple chapters, they were, they were radicals. They were rebels in many ways. They were dissenters. They were revolutionaries. And they would give their lives for this message, right? They would give their lives for this message. Many of them brutally give their lives for this message so that we today could have that same message to carry on. You can't defeat men and women like this, right? You tell them to be, keep quiet about Jesus, and what do they do? They disobey you. They keep talking. You throw them into prison, and you'll find out in the book of Acts, you know what they do? They convert the jailer. You, you whip them. They rejoice to be allowed to suffer for Christ's sake. You stone them within inches of their lives being taken in a city. And not only that, we'll find out later, Paul gets up and returns and goes right back into that city again and keeps talking about Jesus. Kill them. Another one just rises to take their place. Endurance like this simply will win out in the long run, and it has. If you don't believe the message of Jesus today, and this is a very important point that you consider, if you don't believe the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, if you wonder in the Bible, is this true, is it not, I don't know, you have to come up with some kind of explanation for why, why does a church exist today? Meaning, why, why are there people who are following Jesus, why would they give up their lives, and we'll talk about this later in the, in the message this morning, why would they give up their lives brutally in many ways for the sake of something if it wasn't true, right? We have to answer that question. You must come up with a compelling reason for why the church exists today. What moved them to such boldness and sacrifice? Why did they keep on going when it got really hard and tough? And what we're going to see today is the reasons why that happened. We're going to look at it was because of the presence of Jesus, we'll see, uh, the preeminence of Jesus, the providence of Jesus, and the preference of Jesus. Number one, the presence of Jesus. Verse 17 says, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. So currently Christianity at this moment and the message of Jesus is spreading like wildfire in Acts. And it's not just the message that is spreading, uh, but the effects of the message. There's work being done. There are people being loved. There are people being cared for, people being served, healings being brought, needs are being met, right? This is a radical revolution, and they're not just spouting words or attempting to win intellectual arguments. They are, they are loving people and people are being changed. But the words they're sharing contain power, brought about a revolution because the words were the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And in our text, we find these religious leaders again. They show up. If you've ever read the Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four of them, beginning of the New Testament there. Record the life of Jesus. You'll find these religious leaders showing up a lot opposing Jesus. So it's not shocking that we read Acts, which is the next, next section of the New Testament, uh, about the followers of Jesus, what happened. We find the same people opposing. And so they're there. And in many ways, they kind of resemble what we maybe call a gang, right? The followers of Jesus are kind of messing with their territory and their clientele, right? You're, you're kind of fringing on our territory here. And earlier in Acts, we, we, uh, we know they were upset at the message, and they still are. They're still upset at the message of what the followers of Jesus are saying, but now they're not just upset. More than that, we find that they, they're jealous, right? That's what it says in the text. They're jealous. 
What, what about that? The crowds, uh, the crowds now are starting to love these followers of Jesus, right? They're starting to love what they're saying. They're starting to believe what they're saying. And now it's not just an upset at the message. They're jealous at what is happening. You say, well, why are they jealous? I mean, think about what they're jealous of, at least in their world and their minds. Are they jealous of Jesus? I mean, the guy from their perspective who just grew up in a podunk town of Nazareth, right, and uh, basically couch surfed the last three years of his life, didn't have anywhere to live, didn't have a, you know, didn't have a, a, a place to lay his head, he said, like had these followers who were mostly fishermen and no-name people whose followers actually abandoned him at his death. Are they jealous of the, the same Jesus they claim, they claim was a dead man? Are they jealous of a, of a dead man? Are they, are they jealous of his followers who they've observed have no education and in their world is kind of just a bunch of ragamuffins as well? Like, so what are they jealous of? Understand that at the root of their jealousy is their staunch religiosity, okay? At the root of their jealousy is, the, is their staunch religiosity. At the core of their religious commitments is the need Okay, this is why they were so wrapped up in their religion was the need for approval, appreciation, and applause of the crowds. That's why they did what they did. You remember, if you read in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, actually talks about that these very people were the ones who would go, remember, pray and fast in public. Why? So that they may be seen by men, right? That's why they did what they did. And here we find that their thunder is being stolen. <laughs> the applause is now going another direction, and they're very upset at that. They grab the followers of Jesus again now. Last time, we found out in the, in the book of Acts, they had them confined, and they were brought to a court. Okay? They were brought into a court. They were tried, as it were, and thrown in prison. This time, they're not tried. They're grabbed, and they're thrown in prison again. And I have to imagine what was going through the apostles' minds. What was going through their minds as they were thrown into this prison? I mean, they had been given sort of due process before the last time this happened. They didn't get that this time. Does this mean that this is the end? It had to be going through their mind, right? I mean, they already had beat them before, told them not to, to, to uh, speak of Jesus. They did it anyway. Now they're just thrown straight in prison without any trial. Maybe this is the end. Maybe this is all they know, but, but notice during this time of uncertainty and no doubt fear in their minds, we find none other than Jesus show up. Look at verse 19. It says, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors, the prison doors, and brought them out and said, go stay in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, Luke, who's the author of this book of Acts, also the author of the book of the gospel of Luke, he uses this phrase, and this is used throughout the Old Testament. I don't have time to kind of dig through all of this. You kind of have to trust me and then kind of do your own work on this one. But whenever you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, definite article, the angel of the Lord, that is always a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, okay? And so we find here, remember the word angel, actually, get that word out of your mind. You immediately think of like, I don't know, wings and halos and all kinds of different stuff when you think angel. Angel is just the word messenger, okay? Just the word messenger is what it means. So a messenger of the Lord comes. It is actually the person of Jesus. And so while we find these guys are kind of in this prison in uncertainty, can you imagine this scene? Jesus swings the doors open, takes them by the hand, and brings them straight out of the prison. As we find out later, he kindly shuts the door behind them, <laughs> not to wake anyone else up, I suppose, and off they go. 
And we find that as he brings them out, we find this promise, and Jesus made many promises to his followers, but we find one here coming true that is always true, and that is Jesus said, I will be with you. Remember the end of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a great commission, we call it, and Jesus tells us to go make disciples, kind of like Acts 1-8, go into all the world and preach the gospel, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the, ends of the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 28, the last thing he said to them, it's very, 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 uh, pretty awesome here, because Matthew 1 begins with Jesus named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That was his name. At the end, the very last verse of Matthew, he says, go into all the worlds and preach the gospel. And the last thing he says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. That is exactly what we see happening right here. This is the promises he's made, right? John 14, 18 through 19, Jesus told them in kind of the upper room here before he was betrayed. It says, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. This Matthew 28, 20, we just talked about. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right, of Hebrews picks this up and Hebrews 13 says, uh, says, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so our response, can, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That, that was their conviction. That's exactly what they were believing. That's exactly what is happening. It was their sure conviction that Jesus was with them and that he would never forsake them even through death. And don't misunderstand me that Jesus being with you means you won't suffer or Jesus being with you means you won't die. That is not what the promise is here. But they understood that Jesus was with them even through death, which kept their hopes up. I mean, now you have to ask the question, especially from the religious leader's perspective, why would Jesus not forsake them? I mean, wouldn't they fail again? Yeah, they would. Wouldn't they sin again? Yeah, probably a lot <laughs> on a daily basis. Then why would Jesus stick with them if they were faithless? Answer, because he was faithful, right? It was because their relationship with God, and this is so important for you to understand if you don't understand Christianity, your relationship with God, and you can have one through Christ, but it's not based upon your work for him, but his work for you. That's the basis of their relationship, okay? That's the basic relationship with God. It was not because they were worthy that Jesus was faithful and present and stayed with them. It was because Jesus was worthy and had, they had committed their lives to him. You see, it's during the dark night of the soul that we need to be reminded that Jesus is with us. It is during the, the fears and the questions and the uncertainty that we need to turn to him and find our resolve to keep going. He may not show up in person like we see here in this text, but he is no less present in our turmoil, in our pain, in our darkness. I've shared with you many stories of my favorite missionary, uh, John Patton, and uh, he was a missionary to what is modern-day uh, Vanuatu. It used to be called New Hebrides in the Pacific, one of the Pacific Islands. And during that time, he, uh, he had these rival tribes on the island that were both trying to kill each other, and he was kind of caught in the middle, and many times literally dodging arrows from both sides. And uh, part of that story is that he, one time he, tried to, he, tr he trusted one side and told him, hey, you need to go and hide up in this tree. And, uh, and he, the other tribe was coming to attack, and he had no idea if they were going to turn on him or kill him or anything else. He'd already lost his wife, who had died of uh, basically malaria at the time, uh, and his, his son had died as well. And he was all alone. And here's what he said about that, that situation. He said, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree, and I was left there alone in the bush. He said, the hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets 
and the yells of savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all of my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me, speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone? Yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? That's what they're experiencing. That's what they're seeing, the presence of Christ. Now we get back to our story in Acts. And I love this because when Jesus brings them out of the prison, I always like to ask the question, what does he not say? Okay, what, is it, what does not happen here? He, he, didn't, he didn't kind of bring them all together, put the hands in the middle and say, you know, hey, let's go follow to Jesus. You know, it didn't do that. Didn't give him a, you know, no holy huddle there uh, with the group. And there's no hug given here at all. Again, nothing is, none of this is wrong, but he doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He brings them out of the prison, immediately says, go. <laughs> That's what he says. He doesn't say, hey, you guys okay? Are you doing all right? Okay, okay. No, he just says, all right, you're out, now get out of here. Go, 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 go back and go teach again. Go, go talk about me again. And that's always his message to his followers. I am with you, now go. And it's exactly what he does. He tells them to go back in the public sector. Don't stay hidden. Don't go to your homes, your buildings. Uh, go to the culture of people that I've sent you and speak to them the words of life. Now, this action, as we've seen throughout Acts, is an act of almost reckless audacity. I mean, they may just get killed on the spot now. I mean, forget prison, forget court. I mean, they may just get killed. The religious leaders may hire a mercenary to take them out for all we know. But this is the way you act when you believe the gospel and believe Jesus is with you and for you. They, they never asked um, Jesus that night, hey, Jesus, um, before we go back out again now, is this going to be safe? <laughs> Are we going to be okay? They don't ask that question. Do we have our, uh, can we get our house in order, make sure we've got everything in line? Should we, uh, should we put out on, on Twitter or Facebook and kind of get, uh, get our collective, get the collective wisdom of this, is this the right thing to do? Is this okay to do? They don't do that at all. This is what Jesus wants us to do, we're out there. And they go, no questions asked. So they go back into the world, armed with the message, and the message he says is the message of life. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? That's the, Go preach about me. Go talk about me. That's what he says. Not go, not, not go out and give, you know, here's what you need to do in order to, you know, to be okay with God. It's like, go talk about life. What is life? It's me. It's Jesus. And so he's what the world was made for. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the reason we strive, the reason we long, the reason we thirst. And so it was this fact that Jesus was with them and kept, they kept their feet to the fire and moved them in this revolution. Number two, second belief they had was the preeminence of Jesus the belief that Jesus was superior to all other authorities motivated them in the face of possible death and moved them on this mission. So down in verse 21, we find that the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, it says here, um, and sent to the prison to have him brought out. So they get all together, get their, get their garb on, they get you know, set up, and they sent some guys to go, go get the prisoners and bring them out. The officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, hey, we found the prison securely locked, guards staying at the doors, we opened them, we found no one inside. So, so they're all gathered, they, they summoned the, these guards they sent to go get the prisoners, bring them out, and so they're expecting to uh, maybe be even more stern this time, um, and so those they, they sent to get them from the prison return, probably pale as ghosts, 
saying they can't find them anywhere, right? And the door was even shut, and the guards are standing there, and no one has any idea where they are. Verse 24, captain of the temple, chief priests, heard these words. They were greatly perplexed. You can imagine, if you were them, going, okay, um, did they just, like, disappear? Like, what, what just happened here? Wondering what this would come to. So confusion enters the room. You can hear kind of a muffled mix of questions and probably accusations and speculations going on, right? Like, why didn't you just judge them last night and just get this over with? Why don't we just end them this time? Why don't we keep throwing them into prison? You know, I told you not to trust Bobby's cousins as the guards, right? They sleep on the job all the time, something like that. Um, sorry if you're Bobby, but I just felt that. Um, you know, but, they, you know, it's, they're just trying to figure out, they're probably accusing each other. You can imagine the arguments, right? It's someone else's fault, and they're all arguing over what's going on. And then they hear this, verse 25. Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. They're back out there again. Isn't it amazing? And you would think as I read that, I just, I'm still shocked reading that, that they didn't just go home or like go back to the church, you know, wherever the church people were meeting at, in their houses or something, they went right back out in the same place they were before and kept going. I love that. I mean, someone stopped the commotion. They yelled out, hey, those guys in prison, they're out there again. And they're probably all, I imagine the religious leaders now, these political leaders of the day are probably thinking, are these guys crazy? Like, are they inviting, do they want to die? Like, what, what are they doing? I mean, just imagine their minds are blown that they're still going. Uh, I mean, are they having a mental breakdown? What is happening to these guys? And so we find the text, they, they nicely grab the followers of Jesus and they bring them back again into their kind of meeting hall. Um, they had to do it nicely. They're probably like, um, you guys mind coming with us? We have a few questions for you. You mind coming down to the station kind of idea? We have a few questions we'd like to ask you. We'll get you a cup of coffee. You know, we're nice guys. They had to do that because the text says that the crowds were getting upset, right? The crowds are like, okay, this is enough. Now you keep arresting these guys. We like these guys. You keep arresting them. So they're really losing favor with the crowds, Verse 27, when they brought them back into their little council, gave them their cup of coffee, right? Uh, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. So the, the head guy, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, and yet here you are, you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you notice what's missing? After all, my first question would be, how, maybe this is your question, how did you get out of that prison? <laughs> Wouldn't you want to know that? Like, uh, the doors were locked. Like, I know Bobby's cousins were a little bit off, but I mean, they didn't see you leave. Like, how did this happen? I would ask, I would, they don't care. They don't even ask the, the crazy question of like, how in the world did you get out of this prison with the doors closed? Because they're so obsessed with shutting the mouths of these followers of Jesus. They don't even ask that question. I mean, that would have been the first question in my mind. This shows us again how, how uh, uh, shows us again that what is overwhelmingly on the minds of religious leaders is the opinions of the crowds. That's all they care about. They want to win back the applause. They want the opinions of the people back again. Okay, and they'll do whatever they need to do. They see this talk of of Jesus as not only stealing their thunder but also making them out to be the bad guys. That's why it says in the text, it says you're going to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean, the crowds are going to make us think we're we're the guilty party here. You kind of are. <laughs> Right? And so they're, uh, they're upset. And Peter, visibly probably seeing them upset, decides to just go a little further, stick the proverbial knife in and twist it a little bit. Here's what he says. Listen to his words. This is crazy that he didn't die on the spot. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, 
who is that? The God of the, our fathers, that would be their fathers. They're all Jewish, you know, so they're, he's making the connection to the Old Testament here. Whom, who killed? <laughs> you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses whom God has given to those who obey him. <laughs> Peter boldly says, Jesus supersedes you. His authority is greater than you. And then he rubs salt into the wound and says, don't forget um, that, uh, that you killed Jesus and you put him on a tree and that it was, it was the God, by the way, that you claim to worship that raised him from the dead. <laughs> he tells him that because Jesus is alive, because he's at the right hand of God, the position of power and authority, he is thus their leader. That's what he calls him here. He's, he's our leader and our savior and we answer to him. And so the apostles didn't care uh, about what these guys might do or say about them, obviously, because you don't say this kind of thing. You would just kind of keep quiet, right? Plead the fifth, I'm not going to say anything. Peter goes, oh, good opportunity, let's talk about Jesus again. And so he does. Again, they didn't care about what these guys might do or say about them because their comfort, their reputation, their acceptance was not bound up, unlike these religious leaders were, in the performance or the reception of the people. Instead, their identity was bound up in Jesus, who was at the right hand of God. He was their savior. He was their treasure. He was their king. And his opinion and his righteousness is what mattered more than anything else in the world. It didn't matter what anyone else thought. It didn't matter what anyone else did because they were so secure and wrapped up in their identity in Jesus and what he did that it didn't matter anymore. This is a, a similar experience uh, to a guy named uh, John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, like the most published book in the history of the world outside of the Bible. And during uh, his time, his conversion story went like this. Here's just kind of his understanding of the righteousness of God that he got in Christ. He said this, one day, as I was passing the field, the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought with all I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, eh, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The response, he said, now did my chains fall off my legs. Indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. That is what the disciples are experiencing. That is the, their, that their righteousness... What matters most is wrapped up in Jesus, who's at the right hand of God. It was because everything they were and everything they hoped for was wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus that they submitted to him as their Lord. And this is what happens when you really see the gospel for what it is, right? You surrender because Jesus isn't just Savior, he's Lord. Salvation is always all of you for all of Jesus. You don't accept Jesus in parts here. You accept him as Lord and Savior. You wave the white flag, you surrender. And that's exactly what the gospel did in the lives of these guys. And they were willing to endure suffering and to keep talking about Jesus because he was just that valuable to them. And his authority was just that more compelling and attractive. And their love for him resulted, um, love for him as their treasure resulted in their submission to him as their Lord. Number three, belief. They believe that uh, in the providence of Jesus, okay? These guys only believe that Jesus was with them and for them, that he was their king and he was, he was uh, preeminent above all other opinions but also that he was completely sovereign over all things and in control. We see this, and this has been a theme throughout the book of Acts. Look at verse 33. They heard this. This is the religious leaders. They were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. I imagine they did. 
surely this was the end now. Okay, this has got to be over. They're going to go six feet under, push up daisies. It's all over for them. Um, the soldiers are trying. I imagine the soldiers in the room, right, they're trying to back away the religious leaders who are trying to attack them and kill them. I imagine someone like a, like a catcher, you know, who's trying to keep back the batter who just got hit by a 99-mile-an-hour fastball from charging the mound. You know, that's what I imagine these soldiers are doing with the religious leaders. They're trying to keep them back. You know, they're trying to attack the, the apostles. Matter of fact, the word here in the original language, says, the English says enraged. The original language, the word actually is to be, to, means to be sawn in two. That's what they want to do. They want, they want to solve them in twos. That gives you the idea that this is, they're not slightly mad. They're very mad here. And so, they, uh, so they're very upset. I, I say the religious leaders are like uh, Indigo Montoya and Princess Bride, right? You killed my father, prepare to die. Right, you remember this? That's kind of what they're doing. They're like, you prepare to die. We're going to get you. You're dead. Some of you may not know that one, but that's okay. If you don't, that's a shame, by the way. Um, before, the, before they start, now, before they start throwing down here, we find something crazy happen. A Pharisee stands up, and he is, you can imagine if this is kind of like a political, if you imagine this is like the Senate or the House kind of meeting going on, which can get a little feisty sometimes if you like watching C-SPAN, which I don't know why we would, but if you do, you kind of see it gets a little heated sometimes in these meetings, and that's what's kind of going on here. And this guy stands up, he's got, he kind of... Uh, has the opinion of both sides of the aisle, the respect of both sides of the aisle, as it were. He kind, of, he kind of fits in there, and he kind of gives all of them kind of a bipartisan kind of guy, and his name here, it says, is Gamaliel. And he says in verse, so verse 34 tells us about him. It says, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, right? So both sides of the aisle. Earlier on, we talked about this religious crowd, about 100 of them, and they're from a very wide spectrum, from like super liberal religious and super conservative religious. Like they are, they're on both sides of the spectrum. This guy has the, has the favor of all of them, so he can stand up and talk. Now understand, though, he was not like, you know, friends with the followers of Jesus, okay? He was an adamant opposer to Christianity. So much so, maybe you, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, he was such an adamant opposer to Christianity, he was actually the one who trained and taught and commissioned a guy named Saul, who we'll see in a couple chapters, who was actually commissioned to kill Christians. So he was very much not, you know, as the apostles leave the room there, he's not winking at them going like, I got you guys, I got your back. That's not happening at all. He very much wants to kill them too. So this is what we find. Uh, well, I'll give you the reference here. Uh, Acts 22.3 shows us here of his connection to, to Paul, Saul. Saul became Paul. He says here, I am a Jew. This is Paul speaking. Born in Tarsus, he says, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, all right, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Right? So he was very much um, opposed uh, to Christianity. And so Gamaliel is like, um, I'm going to try to try to do a Star Wars illustration, see if I get this one right. Eddie, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this one later. But Gamaliel is kind of like Yoda all right, to these religious leaders. He is the master trainer. Paul was his Padawan, right? Am I, am I doing good so far? Okay, good. Um, who learned at his feet all things Jewish and why to kill Christians. So when he stands up and motions with his hands and does some kind of Jedi mind trick, all right, so there we go, they obey him somehow, all right? See, I, I can get it, I got it. But they do, it's like, it's like crazy. Why are they listening to him? Like, why are, they, why are they obeying what he is saying? And I'm sure the followers of Jesus are like, we're, we're done for, because again, when they leave, it's not like Gamaliel's on their side, and so he would have been just as angry. But shockingly, he convinces them not to kill the apostles, um, who does, which doesn't make any sense. And what's the explanation for this? I could tell you what the explanation is, because this happened throughout the book of Acts. It's the fact that God's even sovereign over this situation, okay? 
Matter of fact, we, we see God in charge of uh, even the opinions of leaders. So listen, all the way back to Genesis chapter 20, we find, uh, we find this, this, uh, this leader in Egypt who had actually taken Abraham's wife for himself. And he had a dream one night, and he was, uh, it said this, that God said to him in a dream, yeah, I, I know that you have done this in the, in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. So basically what we say in there is that God spared uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, in this situation, and God was actually in sovereign over the whole situation. Is, uh, Ezra 6.22, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and it turned the heart, there it is, turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Proverbs 21.1 puts it this way, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, right? Wherever you will. That's exactly what's happening here. He's turning <laughs> the situation. Make no doubt about it. Jesus is in control of the heart, even of Gamaliel here. And he's still in charge of the kings and presidents and leaders' hearts of the world today. I mean, this is so important for us to kind of get a hold of, right? This past year, all right, 2020 in its wholeness, right? Many Christians kind of lost their minds, okay? And, and like just, just law in every sort of fashion of that. It's like we forgot that Jesus is still in control here. He's still sitting on his throne, He's still working even in the matter of world leaders and maybe we're leaders you don't even like, okay? He's still in control of all of that. And so we, we find in the text here, it says, verse 35, here's what he says. Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For for these days, he gives some kind of stories here about a guy named uh, Thaddeus and a guy later about uh, another Galilean who, who stood up and gathered followers. They died and those followers left. He basically says there were many would-be messiahs in recent history and you know what? They all faltered. And guess what happened? The movement died. So just let this go. Same is going to happen to this one. Then he says in verse 38, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Leave them alone. For if this plan is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, <laughs> you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. Shockingly, he tells them to leave these guys alone. Basically, he says, if they are liars... And following this Jesus guy for the sake of money or popularity or whatever they may be, whatever reason they may have, they will eventually give up, right? Basically, what he's saying is that people don't give their lives and suffer for someone who is dead and gone. He says, if, you're, if you give them enough rope, they're just going to hang themselves. Just let them go. Let them go. But if this is for real, he says, and I think in the back of his mind, I think he knows it is, then you better step off because you may be found opposing God, and that's not a good seat to be in. And so they took his advice. But again, this didn't make any sense. These people, even the text in Acts 22 says that they were zealous for God, right? And they were wanting to keep Judaism pure. That's why they were attacking Christianity so opposed. They looked at it as like a, almost like a sect off of, a branch off of Judaism. And it was poisoning the water. And like, you know, what do you do with the, you get rid of it, right? You got to cut it out. But they intuitively knew this was for real. They had been trying to cover it up the whole time. This is why Saul, the most adamant opposer to Christianity, would eventually become Paul, the most adamant preacher of Christianity. Jesus was moving in the hearts of kings and leaders to make a way for the gospel. And it wasn't all fun and games. Part of his sovereignty, part of his design is hard for us to swallow sometimes because he also ordains tragedy and pain into our lives, as we've already seen. Look at verse 40. When they had called the apostles, they beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, you imagine being the apostles now. They have no idea what's been said. 
they have no idea what's occurred. They didn't have like, you know, they weren't, they weren't in the room to hear this situation. Um, all they know is they're probably going to die now, okay? They're probably, they were, in their minds, they're probably convenient to figure out what's the best way to get rid of them without too much publicity and, you know, too much uh, harm to our reputation in the community. How do we get rid of them? Okay, here's the plan. So they're expecting when they come in of how they're going to die is probably what they're thinking. And so we find here that, uh, that these guys, these military guys, the authorities, grab them. And it says here in the text that they beat them. Let me tell you what that means, okay? What they did in that text and what this means is that basically they ripped their shirts off. They tied them to a post uh, so they could not run or fall. And they started tearing the flesh off of their backs with a whip, okay? This is what they were doing. They were beating them with a whip. Most likely it was 40 or 39 lashes they gave them at about 20 they would begin, their skin would begin to break and tear. By the end of these 39 to 40 lashes, they would have got their back, sorry to be graphic here, but would resemble, resemble ground chuck, okay? It's exactly what it would have looked like. I mean, no doubt the, the, the razor, the whip, was not sanitized prior to this either. You know, you can imagine the infections that would soon set in. It would take months for them to feel comfortable with anything on their back, any kind of shirt on their back. That's what they just went through. And when they could barely breathe from the pain these pious religious leaders made a pronouncement to stop talking about Jesus again, and they let them go. Can you imagine? They let them go. And it must have been a shocker. I mean, after, after when they did this to Jesus, remember, in their minds, when they tied Jesus to a post and beat him, what happened? They crucified him. So they no doubt think that's going to happen to them too, but instead they get let go. Again, we see that God was inside, had it all under control. It was all part of his sovereignty, even the suffering. Paul would later write, Philippians 1.29, has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Later in the book of Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, this is kind of the mission, what they did, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself would say in John 16.33, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. These guys believed that everything was ordained by Jesus, and he was not only sovereign, he was good, he was wise. They could trust him, even in the pain. And it's what kept them moving, kept them speaking, and kept them loving their enemies, honestly. Lastly, they had the belief in the preference of Jesus. What happens next, actually, is even more stunning than what just occurred. You would think they would leave uh, maybe a little bit upset, shaken by this whole situation. Maybe they'd, be, maybe they'd be a little bit relieved that they weren't killed, maybe excited about that part, like, we got our lives, this is good. But they do have excitement. But it wasn't from relief of having their life back. This is crazy. It was from amazement. Look at verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that their lives were saved. It doesn't say that. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Like, imagine, like that's their response. I mean, they, they had just been brutalized. They had just been shamed in front of the leaders of the day. And with their, yet their black backs are bleeding, flesh splintering off their shoulders. They cry tears of joy, not that they were still alive, but that Jesus would let them suffer for his name's sake. This is why, my friends, they would turn the world upside down. You see? This is why, and we'll get chapter 6, verse 1, we'll find out it just kept growing. <laughs> More and more people responded to Christ. But what made them react this way? Answer, they preferred Jesus to life. They preferred heaven to earth. They preferred deep-seated joy to trivial, super, superficial happiness. They preferred the acceptance of Jesus to the acceptance of men. 
their hearts have been captured by the love of Jesus displayed for them on the cross and rescuing them from their sin. And their lives were absorbed with Jesus for he had found them and rescued them and he was alive and they knew that. They knew basically two things. I remember uh, in reading uh, John Newton's biography, which we got in the bookstore, is a great biography. He's the writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace. He said, I remember two things. He was kind of interviewed at the end of his life. Two things I remember, I remember from my life. Number one, I'm a great sinner. Number two, Christ is a great savior. <laughs> he said, those two things, that's pretty much my life right there. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And that, that truth, that idea for them changed everything about them. And it certainly wasn't what they were anticipating probably the day Jesus called them off their boats or called them out of the tax booth to follow him. They probably didn't expect all of this kind of going on, but they couldn't help but cry tears of joy. They were changed people. That same John Newton I just told you about um, was also a mentor to a young, another young man back in the 18th century, early, um, um, late 18th century, early 19th century. That same John Newton mentioned he was, a, he was a mentor to a guy named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce came to Christ, was radically changed, so much so that he became, I believe, probably the greatest social reformer in the history of the world by spending five decades of his life fighting for the abolition of the slave trade along with many other issues. In the film, there was a film made out of the book. There's a book, I read this just recently too, called Amazing Grace. But there was a film made out of that book. If you've seen that film, you find uh, in that story, Wilberforce, who's a young man, he's like uh, 25 or so, he's like one of the top political leaders in the UK at the time, um, and he, he's sitting outside, and he's, he's just sitting there in the grass, <laughs> looking at flowers and stuff. And his, his butler comes up to him and asks, hey, what are you doing? Like, shouldn't you be, you know, shouldn't you be writing some speech or be at the parliament? Like, what's going on? And here's what he said. Wilberforce said, It's God. He says, I have 10,000 engagements of state today, but I would prefer to spend the day out here getting wet, studying dandelions, and marveling at spider's webs. To that response, to that statement, his butler said to him, you found God, sir? And here's, here was Wilberforce's response. I think he found me. He says, do you have any idea how inconvenient that is? How idiotic it will sound? I have a political career glitter, glittering ahead of me, and in my heart, I just want spider's webs. I just want to marvel at the creation that God has made. He's like, I don't know what's going on with me. <laughs> I love that. Did you find God? Nope, I think he found me, you know? It was, it was capturing, it was this capturing of the heart that moved Wilberforce to risk his life, to risk his career, and to end not just the slave trade in Britain, but a host of other social and political injustices that were going on at the time. It was the same thing that moved the followers of Jesus here in the book of Acts, to risk their lives and to keep speaking. They would do more than risk their lives. As I told you, many of them would lose their lives. Let me just give you a history of what happened. Matthew would be killed by a sword. Mark would die in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke would be hung on a large olive tree in Greece. John would be scarred by a pot of boiling oil and banished to an island called Patmos to die alone. Peter would be crucified upside down in Rome. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would be killed with a sword and beheaded in Jerusalem. James, the apostle, would be thrown down from a high pinnacle and beaten to death with a club. Philip would be hanged. Bartholomew would be scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew would be bound to a cross until he died. Thomas would be run through with a lance. Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus, would be killed with executioner arrows. Matthias would be stoned and beheaded. Same for Barnabas, and Paul would be beheaded in Rome. That was the end of all of them. That's how far they were willing to go. 
This is why John Piper, author, writer, said, loss and suffering, joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God, show the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in the world than all worship and prayer. Therefore, suffering with joy proves to the world that our treasure is in heaven, not on earth, and that this treasure is greater than anything the world has to offer. The supremacy of God's worth shines through the pain that his people will gladly bear for his name. That's why the gospel spread. That's why it kept moving and why it would take over the world. That's why we're here today was because of this belief that they had. And that same, we could call it a bloody baton, has been passed on to us. We have that today. And again, it takes one generation just to shut their mouths, and it's over, right? We have to keep carrying on that baton. We have to keep passing it on to the next generation. We have to keep working forward and moving forward in this way. And so this passage is really a call for us to look at the cross long enough until we value Jesus more than our life, our reputation, or our livelihood. It's the call to carry out the revolution that started 2,000 years ago. It's a call to stand up and be counted for the gospel's sake. That is what the book of Acts is going to call us to do over and over and over again. It's really uncomfortable, but it's really good. The writer of Hebrews would put it this way. He said, Jesus also suffered outside the gate or to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done for us, let us go to him outside the camp. What is that? Outside the comfort zone. <laughs> outside the places we, we, we feel like we feel comfortable in. And let us bear the reproach he endured. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continue to offer up sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, right? That's kind of going back to what Piper said there a second ago. It's like all the worship and praise and singing and prayers that we can do in this building right now, that's great, it's wonderful, it's appropriate and good, and we should do it. But that's not going to win the world over. The world's going to, we want to take that and move outside these walls and go outside the camp, right, and have the fruit of lips of praise are words of his, of who he is, his value and his worth to the world around, and we suffer for his namesake, right? So as we take communion this, this morning, the, the cup and the, the, the juice and the bread is in front of you there in the, in the pew, if you're a follower of Christ, you can, you can join us, and here's what we're going to do. That, that bread and that juice is, Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him, body is to remember his his, uh, the bread, remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, is the, the juice. We are to remember those things. But before we do that, we always take some quiet time. I always remember as a young believer, uh, when I was sitting out there where you are now, I'd hear a sermon and I'd be like, okay, all right, I need, I need, to, th- I need to think, like, I need to respond to this, I need to think about it, I need to, and it would immediately go right into a song. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, hold on, I need to think. This is why we do this. This is really custom me, okay, because it would be my preference. I'm going to give you quiet time to respond to whatever it is that God may have spoken to you through the passage. Take some time to spend with the Lord. When you're ready, if you're ready as a follower of Christ, you may take that in a few minutes, okay? Um, we're gonna, I'm going to pray for us. If you don't know Christ, it's not for you, but we'd love to answer your questions, any question that you may have. I'll be behind the rock wall here after our service is done. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Um, it's so challenging to see the lives of these followers of Christ. God, what we see in the formation of the early church, the lives of the early church is so, seems so radical and foreign to what we see today in the church in America. God, I pray that you would, um, God, there's, there's just no amount of guilt or shame or command that could move us to live like this. 
It is only from an overwhelming love and joy and value in who you are and what you've done for us that's ever going to move us out of this place and out of the camp and out of our comfort zone. I pray, God, you do that. I pray you give us a, a, a vision, an idea, a thought um, of the value and worth of you that is so supreme and worth so much more than anything this world has to offer. I pray, God, you would use us as a church to see more people come to know you as we see here in the book of Acts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.